Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers share stories inspired by the theme, Hooked, stories of cravings and compulsions. We are rebooting in our 12th season by returning to themes such as this from our first season. Two of our featured storytellers have appeared as slammers before. Dean Warboyce slammed in our first season, and Nicole Force joined us just last year. Beth Norton, our last featured, has been a slammer, featured storyteller, and guest host. It's story time. Dean Warboyce. Hooked our cravings and compulsions. Well, now, fortunately, I have been retired for 12 years, so I am sure that all of the statutes of limitations have gone by the way, and I can now reveal to you in public that I made my living as a professional enabler, and that's the truth. And I took to it, I took to it like a a polywog takes to growing legs so it can get out of the water. I started when I was 20 years old. And pretty soon it got to where I could go to the person that was handling things for me. I learned real early. As an enabler, it's really good to work with a team. That way I didn't have to go get what it was that I was selling to these people who were hooked and who were craving and who had compulsions. I didn't have to worry about that. I didn't have to worry about which corner I was going to work on. I didn't have to worry about somebody interfering or wanting to push me out of there. It was really handy to work with a team. And it's true. They got 80%, 85%, 90% of what I made, what I sold. But you know, I did okay on that extra 20%, that extra 15%, that extra 10%. And I was a bachelor. I was getting along just fine. Within no time at all, it got to where I said, you know, I really like that one corner. And my handler says, well, Dean, that's your corner. I says, you know, I'd like to work about four days a week. I find that that way I have time for other things. I always like to have time to do other things. I worked in stained glass for a while, taught that at Boise State University Art Department. I always like to write. I've written a lot of Idaho history and still write for Idaho Magazine. I always liked to work part-time, gave me time to get up at 10 or 11 in the morning, go out and uh, do what I wanted to do all day long. And then I found that I could tell my enabler, you know, I'd like that 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock work. I find that the customers then, they're not so panicky, and I don't have trouble as I do others. Yeah, I can make more money other times, but doing what I was doing, selling what I was selling, I could get along just fine with... 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock, sometimes 11. Well, just like that, that was my schedule. I must have been a pretty good, pretty good enabler. Well, it then got to where I'd take off for a month, go for drives around the country. I've always liked to travel. Back when in the 60s, I went hitchhiked around the country just for something to do. So I would go out for a week, a month, and I always had that push behind me. Yeah, you got to get back to work. Got to get back to that corner. And so it got to where I'd just tell my enabler, I'd say, you know, 
I think it'll take about six weeks, but it might take two months. And it got to where my enabler just says, Dean, why don't you just call me when you get back? And I'd call when I got back. And usually the response was, well, are you coming in tomorrow? Or are you coming to go get your corner? How about tonight? Well, I could do that. I was close to where I lived. 35 minutes later, I was back at work. It was a nice way to live. I got, I got to where I enjoyed it. One day I came back and I told my handler, I says, you know, I want to tell you that I do appreciate what you do for me. I do appreciate how you indulge my lifestyle. And I just wanted to let you know that. I don't take it for granted. And my handler said to me, oh, Dean, she says, your sales are 25% ahead of anybody else's. You can just do whatever you want. Well, you know, the strange thing about that was I had never sold anything. I had never sold a thing. I can't sell. You know how it is, you get what you want, and then all of a sudden, oh, they're buying that. You want some more, you want some more? That's being pushy. People said, no, leave me alone. I've got what I want. That's what I've got my craving is taken care of right now. Well, that to me is getting pushy. And I don't know if you folks know it, but pushers don't have a very good reputation. And I didn't want to be one. But. I did pay attention. I knew that when people had just what they needed to fulfill their, their cravings, that they didn't want any more. And I also knew that if they got completely out, they might think, oh man, I'm, I'm tired, I'm strung out, I need to go crash. But oh, there's that place, there's that place where you're just about out. And you start to think, nah, you don't really want it, and you start to slow down. And that, no matter when, how busy I was, I would notice it. And I'd go in the back where my, where my uh, uh, team kept my stash. And I'd get that container of my stash, and I'd go out toward them, and I'd have a real nice little you know me, you know I've got what you want. And I'd get up to them and I'd take the cork off of that container and I'd tip it so that what they wanted was just about ready to fall out. And I'd go right up to them and I'd put it over their glass and I'd say, do you want another glass of that Claude Dubois Cabernet? <laughs> well, folks, about 90% of the time, they'd be busy chatting with somebody, or maybe they'd be eat, eating the last of that chocolate cake that I served to their table, and they wouldn't even bother saying yes. they just, yes, I do want another one of those. You just tip that right on into my glass. Well, when I was pouring wine at a table, I would always pour it into the other side so I'd be gentle on the grape. But I'd always pour it in so that it sloshed around quite a bit. And I'd pour it in so that it filled that glass up fast enough so that the aroma would come coming out of that. And I think that a lot of people didn't even notice that, but I know that their noses did. It made a difference to that table. And the last place I worked was Richard's up in Hyde Park. I loved working there. His food was so good it made my job easy. They had some tables right along the window where the sun would shine in. And it was a glory to me to go pour that 
wine sloshing in, being a white, a rosé, or a red, in that sunshine in a glass that was polished so there were no spots on it to distract people, and it would sparkle in the sun. And it only took three or four or five seconds. But while I was busy with 10 other things to be doing right now in the back of my mind, I'd stop and I'd just drink that in, and I'd smell some of that wonderful wine. And that's what it's like to be a waiter. You enjoy these these little moments that just give you a complete break from the dozens of things that you're taking care of at the same time. Well, I was a good waiter, I was a good enabler, but I also like to terrorize my customers every once in a while, <laughs> just for the fun of it, I say. Unfortunately, I didn't get to do it very often, but Every once in a while, in a situation just like this, it's usually four, five, six people, and the table would be all cleared off after dinner, and I'd come in with a cake and a candle, and I'd put that cake down, and everybody else at the table would be saying, oh, good, here's their free piece of cake. It's their birthday. It's their anniversary. They get their free piece, piece of cake from an expensive restaurant, and I'd light that candle. And I'd open my mouth and I'd say, how the world can change. Well, everybody at the table was, wow, it's more than a free piece of cake. <laughs> everybody was really delighted. They were looking forward to it, except one person or maybe two at that table. And that's the people that I was singing to. <laughs> I'd look at that person. And maybe it's because I'm projecting what I would be like sitting there. But I'd look at them and they, they had a nice look on their face. Oh, isn't this special? But I knew in the back of their brains it was, Dear God, no! Not a sane way! Let me die right now! I don't want to go through with this! It can change like that. I had two songs. I wrote my birthday song because all the songs are too snarky for adults or they're too silly for adults. And they just didn't express my, my feeling of how wonderful it is to be alive and to, yeah, it's fun to go from five to seven, but it's also fun to go from 25 to 35. So I wasn't going to be snarky about the fact that we aged. I was going to say what I thought about how lovely it was. My song was okay, but oh, folks, my anniversary song, my anniversary song, I got this from Cabaret, the show Cabaret. First time I heard it, I'd never forgot it. And I've got to tell you that John Kander wrote a much more lovely song than I was ever able to. Due to one little word, married, see a palace rise from a two-room flat. Due to one little word, Married. For a while, I was working at the Gamekeeper. Real nice place. Real plush, big seats. People sure you're supposed to go and just sit for three, four hours. Go and dine. 
We didn't turn no tables. Every once in a while we had a chance to seat a table twice, but not very often. Flambe service. I had to learn that when I started working there. Make those uh, Caesar salads at the table. And folks, there's no option about whether you want anchovies or not. We sat there and we emulsified that raw egg and we chopped up those, we crushed those anchovies and put in the mustard and we put in enough olive oil so when we put this fresh uh, greens in, they would be perfectly covered. Uh, it was a delight to work. It was a lovely place to be. I only lasted a year there. They didn't have windows. I had lived my whole life in the corner office Ever since I was 20 years old, I was no longer in the dish room. I was out where the windows were, and it drove me nuts not to be able to see what was going on outside. So I was working at the gamekeeper, and this old man and this old lady came in, and they had four younger people with them. I'd say 29, 30. Oh, those kids, they were polished up. They were out to have a great time. This is a special occasion. And you could tell they cared for those old folks. And they sat at this six-top we had. The kids around them and this old lady here and this old man here. They sat there and they got their menus and they got their glass of water. And I came up to them. And I was all ready to say howdy. And that old man, he looks at me and he says, I want you to know that I don't like these fancy things. I don't like them at all. I'm just a poor, dumb dirt farmer from Parma, and I'd just as soon be home fixing my tractor. <laughs> but it's our 50th wedding anniversary, and it seemed important to the girls here, and I know it's important to my wife. So here we are, here I am, but I'd rather be watching TV. <laughs> well, I listened to that. And I got down pretty close to him as if I was just going to talk to him. But I said it just loud enough so everybody at that table could enjoy what I was going to say. And I said, yeah, yeah, just a poor dumb dirt farmer from Parma sitting on $3 million worth of land. And he looks at me. And I look at him. And we got along just great after that. We were a couple of dudes who understood each other. For, and for, let me remember where I am in the song. <laughs> And the old despair that was often there suddenly ceases to be. Yeah, they finished their dinner, had a nice time. I crumbed their table so everything was clear. Came out with a piece of cake with a candle in it. Lit the candle got about this far through my song. And I looked down and there was that old woman looking at that old man. She had a pretty mellow look on her face, I must admit. But you could tell she was adding it up. 50 years, <laughs> 50 years. 
of all the ornery, good-looking boys that were chasing my skirt back at Parma High School 50 years ago, I went and fell in love with him. You know what? Look at those kids. What great kids. He's been a good father, and he's been a good husband. Yeah, he's a guy. I got upset with him at times, but he's been a good husband and a good man. I'm still in love with him. I, it's been good, she was thinking. For you wake one day, look around and say, I look down at that old man, that crusty old man doesn't like none of this stuff, rather be watching TV. And the crocodile tears were rolling down his cheeks so fast, then falling off his chin. They were coming so fast that they were just bouncing off his shirt. And he was completely oblivious. He had no idea I was watching him just sit there bawling. He had no idea his girls were. He didn't care if his wife was. The only thing he knew was that he loved that woman with every, every molecule of his being. Somebody wonderful Mary me Nicole Force. Before coming to Idaho, my family grew up in Moses Lake, Washington. Small town, lake town. It was also quite cold there. My dad put me on cross-country skis at age three. That was a hoot, let me tell you. It was loud and angsty for both of us. <laughs> So when I turned five at Christmas, instead my mom got me a pair of white, brand new ice skates. Us kids would bundle up and we'd put our skates over our shoulder and we would walk down to the lake for ice skating. I sat on a frozen log while all the other kids went out on the ice and I tightened my boots just as tight as I could get them because I remembered my mom saying that I wanted to have control over the boot. I didn't want to have slack in the boot. So if I fell over, I didn't cut myself with that very sharp blade. And so I would have precision when I got out on the ice. When I got out on the ice with the big kids, I loved it. The wind in my hair and the sound of the blade slicing the ice and the ice crystals flying behind. I think for the first time in my life, I could go anywhere I chose within that home-groomed rank, and I could get there as fast as I pleased. And I liked to go fast. Over the next couple of years, I learned to race on roller skates. I also um, learned to downhill on telemark skis. <laughs> and then for several years, I competitively raced on Rosignol's downhill. Well, my dad, he encouraged me to race, and boy, did I ever. <laughs> when we moved to Idaho in 1984, 
There wasn't a lot going on outside in the country of Nampa, Idaho. Not a lot of people out there. We had to drive everywhere for our entertainment. And I felt like a latecomer getting into driver's ed at age 15 and a half, and I was very motivated to get that license. And the summer before, my mom had gotten a new car, a sports car. It was the Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme Coupe. <laughs> it kind of looked a little more like a sedan. <laughs> well, that winter, she slid through an icy corner and went over an ice bank, and she had some undercarriage damage. And so my mom and my dad had a conversation, and they decided that she would get a, a heavier, more reliable Buick. And I got the Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. <laughs> Come to find out, I had a compulsion for speed. <laughs> now let me tell you a little bit about this car. Under its matronly hood, it had a high compression, high output, quad four engine coupled with a body type that was the GM10 platform, which was a two-door notchback coupe that first appeared at the 1988 Indianapolis as the pace car driven by Chuck Yeager. <laughs> it circled the next couple of years and landed in the NASCAR winner's circle like 13 times. <laughs> There were 180 galloping horses under the hood of my new car. <laughs> and as soon as I got the keys to the car and was over the hill and out of view of the house, we sped like a bat out of hell. <laughs> we crested every hill. My neck stretched long to survey the miles ahead. And then we'd swoop through a depression in the earth just like a jet screaming through a mountain pass. The thing I liked about speeding is when I got to the top of the hill, gravity did this kind of equalization thing, and yeah, I was probably catching air. <laughs> but there was like this pregnant pause at the top. The landscape was colorful and blurry, and there was a moment of expectancy. It was bliss. And then the road caught the tires and we continued on as fast as we could on a tuned suspension. It was one sweet ride. <laughs> well, after my dad died, I didn't have to ask for the keys anymore. My mom got a full-time job in Boise and started working late. And I know this was an overwhelming time for her, trying to restart her career after losing her life mate, struggling to make payments on that big, beautiful house out by the lake. And then there was me. But it was me who took the realtor's phone calls when she had to put the house up for sale. The realtors would inevitably call between 4 and 6 p.m., and they would give me 15 minutes to vacate the house and ask me to be gone for about two and a half hours. There was nowhere to go. So I got my purse, and I got my keys, and I drove. I drove 
everywhere in the valley that year. I drove from Marcin to Melba, Black Cat Road to Black's Creek Road, and yeah, I went fast. <laughs> Where I had been going down those two-lane country roads at about 60 miles an hour, I started pushing the Oldsmobile up to 70, 80, 95, and one dark night, I buried the needle going downhill at about 119 miles an hour. I remember screaming past the farmer's field about a mile from my house, and there was a shade tree in the field with these owls living there, and they came out to fly next to me, and they were like floating backwards beside the sides of my car, and I had heard that some people believed owls were messengers of the underworld, and I wondered if they had a message for me. Like maybe I was trying to outrun death. But daytime hours, I just didn't think about such dark things. <laughs> I like to cruise around 90 miles an hour with my music loud. People saw me coming and they got off the road. Well, I was cruising past the farmer's place at 90 miles an hour one morning, singing out the window, and the back right tire blew. And I didn't know what it was, so I tapped on the brakes and the wheels locked. I started sliding from one side of the lane to the far side of the other lane, and I wasn't slowing down. I was going into a Tokyo drift. So I started looking for somewhere to go, and there was the farmer's field with a ditch in front of it. So I tightened up my body around the wheel, and we jumped the ditch in a dukes of hazard maneuver, and we landed in softly tilled, fresh, deep soil, and we came to a sudden stop. Bump, 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 bump. Well, I sat there for a little bit. It was quiet, and I was uninjured, and fortunately, nobody was injured. But I sat there absorbing what it felt like to feel saved, to feel cradled by earth, safe, if you will. It was quiet and peaceful, even. And then I realized there was no one around. <laughs> that is why it was so quiet. <laughs> I could have sat there for probably two hours before an adult who knew me came by. I realized I would have to take responsibility for the situation. <clears throat> so I hobbled the Oldsmobile to the end of the field and there was a little land bridge that went over the ditch. We got up on the road and drove about another half a mile down the road. And I realized that the back right tire wasn't functioning, so I pulled over. And I did actually know how to change a tire. <laughs> and that's probably when the adrenaline kicked in because I was able to undo all of those lug nuts and pull off the old ruined tire with its fleshy strips <laughs> of ruined rubber and set it aside. <clears throat> but the thing I struggled with was pulling out the new tire. Before my dad had passed, he put a full-size brand new tire in the trunk. And it was heavy. So I was trying to like rule the tire out of the trunk and keep it in my hands so it didn't go down the road without me. <laughs> and roll it to the base of the car and oh, try and get it up on the wheelbase. And I thought I could do it, but I just wasn't strong enough. I couldn't lift the tire and also position it on the wheelbase at the same time. I needed help. 
So over the hill came this big trash truck. And the driver, he saw me and he stopped. And he got out and he said, I saw you driving real fast. I saw you slide from side to side on the road and you went off. And I said, yes, sir. You could have rolled it. You could have been hurt bad. Well, I'll change your tire. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't have anything to give this person, except for I did say a sincere thank you before he went on his way. But thank goodness for people who help others in their time of need, um, because sometimes people do need help from their community. Well, anyways, I was an hour and a half late to school, and I must have looked a fright. <laughs> I had coffee all over my shirt, and <laughs> I had it dried on my face in patches, like patches of blood, except for it was coffee. <laughs> and I had this big black tire tread mark across the top of my light blue slacks. But I was uninjured, so they put me back into class. And I made it through the day, and I made it through to graduation. And um, you would think that this close call <laughs> would have slowed me down. <laughs> but really, it was college and moving to Boise that slowed me down. First of all, on campus, um, there just wasn't much need to drive very far. <laughs> and I realized when I lived in a neighborhood that if I wanted to live like with other people around me, like my best friend, <laughs> that I would have to slow down and be more careful with the people. <laughs> um, college really saved me in so many ways, too. I was able to decide my, um, I was able to determine my major and select my classes and take some control over the way I wanted to grow myself moving into the future. And I'm a responsible driver now and a respectable mom. But as I was thinking about this story, I have to admit that um, I got to thinking about driving. And I kind of miss it. And I was having a hard time sleeping the night after writing the scenes to this story. And out my window, because I live on a busy street, I heard this vroom, vroom, the little knock in the engine. And it reminded me of my car. <laughs> and I miss my old car. <laughs> and now I think maybe when my son turns 16 and gets his license next year, that I might give him my old Subaru Outback. And I might get something with some more speed. <laughs> I might go hit the racetrack. Please put your hands together for Beth Norton. Thank you, Jody. Um, I think the pandemic brought back compulsions for everybody. Um, I think if you made it through at least that first year and you didn't, you didn't get back into a compulsion, then you're psycho. Um, <laughs> for me, my, my, my way of handling things with the pandemic at, at first was just to kind of block out everything that I had lost and focus on what I could do and get through. I was about halfway through a master's degree, so I just kind of put my head down. Most of my classes were online, and I finished it. And, uh, and then right after that, I went to work at the Capitol in the legislative ses session last year. And after all of that really intense brain work and after 
um, that crazy legislative session, I was so ready for a break. I, um, I saw, I, I went back to one of my compulsions, which is service industry work. Um, and, uh, and like Dean, I have been in it a long time, probably about 20 years off and on. I started when I was 16. And um, I saw that one of my favorite restaurants was hiring. And so I was like, I just want a fun summer job. Um, the reasons why I love service industry work have remained the same over all these years. Uh, it is, it's fun, you get to move around. Um, I like the tips, I like that little hit that you get. You get like a little, it's like a, like a Facebook, like you get a little dopamine, like every time you get one, you know? And then depending on the date, you know, if you get a good one, it's like, oh, yes. And then if you get, if you get a bad one, it's like, oh, or it's like, yeah, fuck it, whatever, I'm too good for this anyway. And um, so. <laughs> And, uh, and so, and I also, I also love the people. Um, I love the people that work in the service industry. They are typically um, young, except for Dean. And, um, and sorry, Dean. And, uh, and um, maybe they're going in through school or like working through things in their life, you know? They've typically like just come like come from places, rough places, they know how to hustle and are super funny and know how to entertain. And so I, I do love the people that work in the service industry. And um, it is a challenging environment though also for, for me particularly, and, and probably for most of the people that work in there, but it's, you know, it's not regular hours, not regular pay, you miss weekend things and birthday parties and, and things like that. And uh, there's just a lot of fluctuation. People are coming and going all the time and there's just not a lot of job security in that. Um, and then also, um, you know, as Dean mentioned, you're a professional enabler, um, and and typically also you're surrounded by addicts, either your customers, or your coworkers, um, you know, and and denial is like the parent of of addiction, and you kind of have to entertain it in order to in order to get through it. And uh, maybe part of my compulsion has to do with uh, the fact that my father is an alcoholic, his father was an alcoholic, my mother is an alcoholic, her mother is an alcoholic, her father is an alcoholic. Um, I've just been surrounded by them my whole life. I spent most of my childhood in foster care. And people say that like your job is a lot like a family, you'll hear this, like my work environment, we're like a family here. And that, I would say that's especially true in the service industry. Um, but uh, I would say it's more like a foster family <laughs> in that when they've done, you're done using you for work, um, they could just let you go. Uh, <laughs> they could, that was my experience anyway. Um, <laughs> um, but um, um, I, I really, the, the last job, the last service industry place I worked, I really loved it. Um, my coworkers were some of the best that I had. Kind of like Dean mentioned, the, um, the food's great and that makes your job a lot easier. Um, and the clientele was great um, and I really loved it. Um, but one of the side effects of my childhood is complex PTSD. And this is not something that is you know, generally talked about or familiar in our society. So I'll try to just give a really quick breakdown of, of what it is. It's, people use the word PTSD a lot for things inappropriately, um, but, but when you have PTSD, it's like your body's memory of when your life was threatened in some way, and then it plays out in different ways. Complex PT, PS, PTSD is when your life was threatened by someone who was supposed to take care of you. The, the sort of three main symptoms of this are 
as you can imagine, difficult forming, difficulty forming and maintaining intimate relationships or close relationships, um, a negative view of the world um, and your place in it, and um, there's, oh, difficulty controlling your emotions. <laughs> How could I forget that one? Um, <laughs> I have all of these things, and that makes working environments very challenging for me um, because they simulate a family environment. This is something I've really struggled with my entire life. And I did struggle at this place, at this restaurant job um, at times. And I was so grateful because I had coworkers who were patient and compassionate. And when I struggled in ways that were ridiculous, right, to the outer eye, but in my mind, completely real, um, they, just, they just surrounded me and uh, showed me love and compassion. And that meant a lot to me. And, and as I progressed in that job, I started to blossom. Uh, I started to, like, with my coworkers, just really feel more open and more comfortable being myself. And, um, and I had a good time. I, I did still struggle with, um, and I'll, I'll frame this. This might sound like a sidetrack, but I, I got... I got my natal chart read by an astrologer once, you guys. And she said three things to me that really stuck out in this situation. She said, it like kind of came into my mind when I was struggling at work. She said, um, you're gonna have difficulty with male-dominated hierarchies. She said, which is, you know, okay, duh. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? Uh, she, <laughs> What else is she? Oh, I'm forgetting the second thing. Oh, man. You're in difficulty with male-dominated hierarchies. Um, and then there's something else. <laughs> and then um, basically she said, you know, you're going to need to, um, you're going to want to maybe leave a job. Oh, she said, yeah, this is so key. She said, um, you need to be in a place where your um, thoughts and ideas are valued. Right? Also, duh. But yes, right? <laughs> Um, sometimes you need to be told these things. Um, and then in this situation, I had been feeling at this restaurant that like with management, that as a front of the house person, my thoughts and my ideas weren't being valued. You know, changes were being made uh, that would require me to adapt really quickly and I could do it. Um, but I often wouldn't get time to, to process or work out systems around that change. And I often didn't, I, I never had a voice in any of them. And I was, I was noticing this was starting to bother me, and I had started to look for other jobs, but what kept me at that job was, was my coworkers. I loved it, and, and, and the nature of the work. Um, and, um, and so I was thinking about, about leaving, and then there's a third thing that my astrologer had said to me, um, which was, before you leave a job, you need to ask for what you need. Ask for what you need. And this was a practice for me because I was in the habit of, of just waiting until my emotions hit that point where I just couldn't take it anymore and then push everybody and everything away, right? So instead of doing that because I valued this place, because I valued the work, I pulled my manager aside and I said, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling when decisions are made and, and, and I don't have a voice in them. And I know my opinions won't get heard all the time, but I, I really need to have a voice at the table in things. And um, the conversation went okay. Um, there were some, always some warning flags there again, like it's not, it's not an HR department there, you know? Like, um, these people don't have training. I don't know, it didn't go great, okay, is what I'm saying. 
the, the conversation didn't, didn't go great. Um, you know, it was kind of clear to me that, that my manager was holding on to some things and not communicating them, but we ended with a hug, and, um, which I know sounds weird, but anyways, we hug. We ended with a hug, and I uh, thought everything was fine. And, um, and then I went home, and I noticed um, going into the next week that there, I didn't have a schedule for the next week. And so I text, I text my manager, and I was like, do you know when the schedule will be out? And uh, he asked me to give him a call, and so I made him wait a few hours, and then I called him. And because uh, I, could, I could feel it coming. Um, I kind of had a, a sense of things, you know? And uh, immediately when I called, uh, he picked up and he just said, we've decided to let you go. Yeah. And I've been fired so many times, you guys. <laughs> I have been fired, I have been dropped by friends, I've been dumped, I've been abandoned by both of my parents. It never stops hurting, it never stops hurting. And for somebody who comes from something like I came from, it has the potential to really drive me into the ground. Um, and part of the reason why I wanted to tell this story is because today is Idaho's um, Advocacy and Awareness Day for Suicide Prevention. Um, thank you. I did not kill myself, I am still here. <laughs> but I did spiral down, I spiraled down really hard and really quickly, um, all the way to the bottom. It was like I had like jumped off a 75 foot building and then just went straight down into the concrete. When I hit my bottom, my bottom is, um, the world would be a better place without me. That is my, that's my bottom. And I hit that, and I hit it so hard and so fast that I just broke right through that concrete. And um, I leaned on friends. I called and talked to everybody I knew. I didn't let one moment of like shame or like this was my fault or any of that enter. I just broke right through it and I hit like the largest trampoline like catch pad you could ever imagine. And I skyrocketed up. I bounced back so hard. I, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I started singing every Gloria Gaynard song that you can imagine. If you don't know who that is, that's I Will Survive for one, for one of them that you can think of. I, I uh, was just lifted up by support from my friends and my community. I felt corralled by them. I had people that were like, I'm never going back to that place. And I had people who were like, um, let me help you with unemployment. And I had people who were like, come work with me. You know, I got it, I got it from everywhere. And um, I, I lifted so high, so high into the sky that when I looked down, the restaurant and the people and everything, they were just little specks in the grand scheme of things. And um, I had an ending <laughs> to it. <laughs> I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm like stoked. I'm like, I got fired for finding my voice. And like, I'll take that any day over a restaurant job. So, thank you for, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. 
Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Boise Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. Thank you.